Welcome, everyone, to the Friday morning edition of Unexpected Points. I'm your host, Kevin Cole. Our agenda for the day is reviewing Thursday night, a surprisingly competitive Thursday night football contest between the undefeated, spoiler alert, still undefeated, Philadelphia Eagles and Houston Texans have some takeaways, not only for the normal stuff, the adjusted scores, the number of the game, some of the grading aspects of it. Also going to look a little bit deeply into a couple of players, uh, Javon Hargrave for the Eagles and Derek Stingley, the cornerback, generational talent type of cornerback who came out for the Texans and some of his struggles this year, which have been fairly well documented, but I'm going to put some numbers around that stuff. I'm going to hit the best recreational, put that in quotes here, recreational bets. Okay. This is not a tout show here, but I like to go through and, you know, try to leverage some of the adjusted scores works that work that I do. Some of the NFL power rankings work that we do here at PFF, bring those together, make a few adjustments based upon injury news and trend. And I'll explain a little bit more as we get to it and then pick out a few games where there might be some sides that are interesting this week. And then lastly, we're going to do mailbag. I know I haven't done mailbag, although I said I was going to do mailbag the last couple of weeks. I've collected some questions. I see there's already a question here in the comments when I'm going live here on YouTube. So drop some additional questions in the comments and then I'll be able to bring those up and actually show them to everyone as we are talking through the mailbag questions I have. And again, I'll peruse those and try to bring in some new ones as we get them. But first, let's get to Thursday night football. Are you ready for some Thursday night football? Um, The Eagles end up pulling this one out, but it was close for a while. And I think a turning point may have been the first of a couple of different turnovers here from Davis Mills in the second half. Third and six. Pressure on Mills. Lookout. Throws. And it's going to be picked at the 42-yard line. Gardner Johnson, his fifth interception of the season, and takes it into Texans territory. Yes, Chauncey Gardner Johnson, fifth interception of the season. And remember, this is one of the, I don't want to say brilliant moves from Howie Roseman. I mean, it's an open market here to trade for guys. Uh, I don't know how much negotiating the Saints were doing, trying to figure out a new home for him. But, hey, props to the Eagles, who are getting maybe not these, like, elite, elite players during the season, like they got A.J. Brown in the offseason, but are also adding a lot of depth to the back end and now to the front as they made that trade for um, for, for a lot of other players to bring in here to have some, some depth in all areas. So, you know, Howie's... How he's doing his thing. He's definitely doing his thing right now. And we'll see how it plays out going forward for the undefeated Eagles. Not much to talk about as far as playoff probabilities in this one. Eagles are basically 100% to make the playoffs. I think it is somewhat interesting from the fact that the Texans are now getting closer and closer to potentially getting that number one pick, which I think we have them forecast more likely than the Lions right now, who are one in six, the the Texans are now one, six, and one. We have them more likely to get that pick. So, um, you know, continue to do your job there. Love you, Smith and Davis Mills and, and everyone else there to go ahead and secure that selection. It was looking a little, uh, looking a little dicey 
in the first half, at least. Let's get to first the number of the game that I'm going to bring up for every single game before I get to the particulars on it. So the number of the game on this one, I'm going to say is 70. So what is 70? So that is the percentage of times the Eagles converted to a new series of downs when they reached third down in this game. Now, there were a lot of times they didn't reach third down because they were pretty successful moving the ball, but they did reach third down a decent amount multiple times in the first drive where they had third and six, third and eight, third and three on the goal line that they didn't convert the third third and three, but then they converted the fourth and two for the touchdown. So they were five of 10 on third down, but they were two of two on fourth down. So you, you put those together, you know, so two of their failures on third down were actually a success on fourth down. So seven out of 10 times they converted there. And that's basically the game. I mean, I've said this before. I've probably said it ad nauseum. Make or miss league in the NBA when it comes to three-pointers, whether you win or not. Uh, it's kind of a convert or don't convert league in the NFL. Certain teams can avoid getting the third down, which is becoming more difficult without as many explosive plays this year. But when it comes to converting third down, being able to convert, being willing to run plays that you know will set yourself up for a potential fourth down, which we saw, again, third and three on the goal line, running the ball there from the Eagles, and then going ahead and running again at fourth and two, they are better than almost anyone at knowing that sequential, that sequentialism for what they can do. I mean, the second time they picked up the fourth down, it was crazy. It was like a, you know, a Hertz run for 14 yards on third and um, 15. Then they pick it up on, on fourth and one. So great job by the Eagles using that. But again, they're not going to keep this sort of measure. They're not going to be seven of 10 converting uh, third downs. But this is what really made the huge difference in this game because the flip side of it, Again, talent comes into this. I'm not saying it's all luck, but still the flip side of it, the Texans two of nine on third down. They can't convert. The Eagles can convert. That ends up being a big difference in addition to the turnovers that we uh, that came at the end of the game. One of them fairly meaningless at the end, uh, interception at the end of the game. The particulars for this one. So Philadelphia was a 14-point favorite on the road in this game. Enormous number here. They win by 12. Congratulations to Houston's Texans betters who were sweating it out there at the end, just, you know, never basically covering the entire game, just hoping there wasn't going to be a pick six or something at the end, or the Eagles would get a very late touchdown there at the end. Luckily that did not happen for them. Philadelphia, the adjusted score here is 32 to 22. It's a little bit surprising that the Philadelphia score is so high because they were so good converting on third and fourth down. That's something that's not necessarily sustainable at that level, but they were consistently successful. They're in the 90th percentile for their success rate, how good they were in this game. And Houston wasn't bad. They were in the 50th percentile. That was part of the problem for Philly early in this game is that Houston was able to move the ball well, going all the way down the field on first down, I mean, on the first drive and being able to be successful later on in the game, getting a strip sack fumble on Jalen Hurts on a kind of weird play there. That helped them out, obviously, quite a bit. But then things kind of regressed back to what we were expecting and fell apart in the second half, which we we kind of knew that that was going to happen. All right, so let's get to uh, some of the numbers from this game, some of the players to highlight in this one. Damian Pierce, I guess, if we're going to start positive for the – Houston Texans, we have them down here for nine missed tackles forced is what our 
is what our metric is that combines broken tackles and other sorts of things that wouldn't be considered broken tackles, but let's say juking out a defender in the hole, something like that so far this season. I mean, incredible rookie year for him. He was someone I was somewhat high on coming into the season, mostly because of opportunity. Mostly because of opportunity this year, I thought that he had a good chance of potentially leading that backfield. I know he was the highest graded rusher coming into this season uh, for the draft class, but that didn't necessarily mean that I thought that he was going to be on this level that he is so far this season. Only Nick Chubb has more uh, of this metric, this broken tackles, missed tackles forced. It's really a gap between them and the next player, Josh Jacobs. So 55 for Chubb, 51 for Damian Pierce. If we look at a per rush attempt basis for anyone who has at least 100 carries so far this year, Aaron Jones is number one at about 0.4. Nick Chubb is number two at 0.36. And then Damian Pierce is number three at 0.34, along with Josh Jacobs. Other guys, Jonathan Taylor's lower. Ramondre Stevenson's having a great year. He's a bit lower. Derrick Henry is at about 0.2, so he's a bit lower. So right up there near the top. And, you know, Pierce is starting to get some of these longer carries, too. One of the things that was a little bit concerning for me on him, not concerning, but a little bit mitigating maybe some of the, the positive feelings that I had on him, was a lot of missed tackles forced, a lot of broken tackles, some longer runs, but still the total yards per carry sort of numbers. If you look at them for Aaron Jones, it's up at 5.8. Nick Chubb, it's up at 5.8. Those aren't sustainable, but let's face it. Those are numbers that are really helping juice things up here. Uh, Damian Pierce at 4.7. Now they're about the same after contact. He's only a little bit lower after contact. So it's really a yards before contact issue, less than a yard before contact for Damian Pierce whereas it's 2.1 yards before contact for Aaron Jones, 1.8 for Nick Chubb. So he's not, whether that's blocking, whether that's vision, however you want to put it together there. I think sometimes we attribute way too much of that to um, blocking versus vision. It's, it's an interesting thing to think about here because uh, Damian Pierce is really generating all of these yards after contact, second only to Derrick Henry as far as the number, the percentage of yards after contact generated this year. So he's really the positive story for the Texans. They didn't really they didn't have their receivers. Brandon Cooks was sitting out after not being traded. Uh, another guy who I like a bit, Nico Collins, who had been coming on in recent weeks, has missed the last couple of weeks, so he didn't end up playing there. Uh, not a lot else to talk about them offensively. When it comes to the Eagles, uh, Jalen Hurts had a 74 grade in this game, nine yards per attempt, pretty good, but didn't throw the ball a whole lot. 27 uh, pass attempts, and that's a little bit lower than you would have thought because four sacks, which I don't like to see for him. Again, one of them was a strip sack fumble where it looked like there was some confusion there, so maybe we don't count that. A couple of scrambles, so he was scrambling and getting sacked a decent amount of time versus the total attempt, uh, the total rushes. But then they just poured it on with the running attempts, 31 attempts for 143 yards in this game. Miles Sanders, 5.5 yards of carry, 93 yards. And Jalen Hurts himself, nine carries, 23 yards. And he also had a good touchdown run from Kenneth Gainwell. Another one where, you know, they're just saying, hey, we're just going to run it on these third downs near the goal line and be able to pick it up because we know we will go for it on fourth down. That really opens up the playbook, especially in a condensed area in the red zone near the goal line. Having that ability to run these read option plays 
where they can be RPOs or read options or just pure read options for Jalen Hurts. Sometimes it's it's like three options. It's hand it off, run it, or pass it for Jalen Hurts. Having all those options in a condensed part of the field, knowing you're going to go for it on fourth down, huge advantages to being able to convert here. And it won't happen every week, but the Eagles were four of four converting touch into touchdowns whenever they got into the red zone in this game. Uh, from the receiving production, again, you had a bunch of nobodies here for the Texans. They only had a 50, 154 yards in total passing production, so not a lot to go around. This was a Dallas Goddard game for the Eagles' highest-graded receiver of the game. Nine targets, eight catches, 100 yards, and a touchdown. Seven of those not of those eight catches converting first downs. Highly, highly impactful. Uh, off the charts as far as his expected points added because he was also a guy that was being used and converting a lot of these third downs that we talked about as being very important to the success of the Eagles in this particular game. And when it happens, when Goddard goes off, when you have 243 total yards passing, this is somewhat of the fantasy football dilemma with this team is you can have high-end outcomes from Devontae Smith and A.J. Brown sometimes, but... If Goddard's going to have a good game, one of those guys is likely going to suffer unless Jalen Hurts is throwing for, you know, 350 yards a game. So two catches for 22 yards for Devontae Smith, four for 59 for A.J. Brown, but then he ends up getting a touchdown later on. And he also got three first downs on those four catches. So he had some big first down conversions as part of what he was doing also. Uh, let's get to the defensive side of the ball. Eagles defense struggled a bit early, especially in pass rush defense sneakily and this is what some te- some people were surprised by when i threw up the offensive percentiles for these teams their defensive percentiles that the eagles were last in the nfl against the run and it hasn't affected them this much this year because they are they have the easiest schedule in the nfl so that's that's pretty sweet Uh, They're leading a lot. As we saw, there were some stats during the game that they put up there about the fact that I think it was in the neighborhood of 75% of Jalen Hurts' dropbacks this season have been with the lead as opposed to even being tied or being behind. That rarely happens. The Jacksonville game, they got down early in that game. Other than that, haven't seen a lot of them getting down early. Uh, Other than this Texas game, they got down a little bit early, which is concerning. But the run defense is... It's not showing up a ton, even in games like this, where the Texans want to run. Their pass rate versus expectation was low. Damian Pierce was playing well, so they got some offense going. But as long as they're playing these bad teams that can't convert first downs through the air, which you have to do most of the time, if you're beyond third and three, you have to convert first downs through the air. Not playing that level of quarterback play, not having to deal with that. The fact that their run defense has been bad has not affected them. 32nd, again, last in efficiency, 29th, so one, two, three, fourth worst in success rate against the run. Whereas against dropbacks this year, against these bad quarterbacks that they've been playing, bad teams normally equal bad quarterbacks, and they've played a lot of bad teams. Third, uh, success rate against the pass or against dropbacks. Second, efficiency uh, against the pass. That's what's been driving it. So that's what gives them a total ranking this season of sixth. Sixth best 
uh, efficiency against on the season. But again, that that kind of hides some of this huge dichotomy between the pass and the run. Maybe they are inviting the run somewhat as using one of these defensive schemes nowadays where we're seeing a lot where you're just daring teams to run the ball versus pass the ball, especially um, in games that you're that you're up in. But that could become an issue later on in the season on their way to the to the you know hopeful NFC championship. If they can get the bye, they can go forward. You're going to have teams like the Cowboys who are going to at least try to run the ball against them, who might be the second best team in the NFC right now. Tampa Bay can't run the ball at all, but if they can get a little something going, maybe that'll help them out because they just feel like they need to run the ball a lot. Uh, the Packers, if they can make a comeback here, they're running the ball a ton and doing so efficiently. So that could be a bad matchup for the Eagles here. And maybe even someone like the Vikings where they're not really as good of a six and one team as even the Eagles are at now um, eight and no, but they are, they can run the ball sometimes. And if they, if they have a situation where Dalvin Cook's starting to get going a little bit over there, it's something they can lean into where Kirk Cousins is honestly playing at a little bit lower level that, that we've seen this season versus prior seasons this year. Okay. What else did I want to talk about in this one? So I want to talk about Derek Stingley real fast here. Uh, actually, no, Javon Hargrave first. So Hargrave was highlighted during the game, rightfully so. Three sacks, seven pressures. He has six sacks on the season. Not a ton, but 32 pressures, about a 20% win rate for him and a 14% pressure rate. The key here, though, is that he is just adding. Like, they have so many layers here when it comes to Redick, when it comes to Hargrave, when it comes to... Uh, Fletcher Cox, who I know was injured in this game, but I think he came back in in this one. Having all of these different players together really provides a lot, especially from the interior here, pass rush. But he is one of these guys who has not graded well for us for run defense, about a 51 grade on run defense. So he's probably prototypical of the type of player that the Eagles are using here as far as the focus on the pass. Um, gap responsibility is not as high for him as go after and get that quarterback and provide interior pressure, which has been very successful for them. But again, it's part of this larger formula where we look at um, Jonathan Gannon, who's the defensive coordinator there, supposedly a very fetid sort of guy in the offseason for head coaching jobs. What he's doing here, I think Hardgrave embodies a lot of what they're doing on the front end. And then, of course, having the talent on the back end to be able to make plays and interceptions uh, when you provide that pressure in the interior. On the flip side, player who's struggling, uh, Derek Stingley Jr., which remember, this is one of the highest drafted cornerbacks in NFL history going to the Texans at the third pick here. He was a third pick, right? Let me just check that to make sure. Um, overall, I know Chauncey Ch- uh, Gardner, I mean, I'm sorry. I know that um, Sauce Gardner was not that far uh, below him. You know, they end up going third and fourth, but Stingley had one of the best freshman seasons that we've seen in a while at LSU. He was seen as being, I think, a little bit more of the generational type of talent. You know, that that guy, maybe the best guy we've seen since Jalen Ramsey. I don't know. To come out here, Jalen Ramsey for what was the fifth pick overall in his particular draft. It's been rough for Stingley so far this year. He has a 49 coverage grade for us. If you look at some of his stats versus others so far this season, especially other rookies, he's given up over eight yards 
Pert, when he's targeted, Sauce Gardner is at three and a half yards so far this season. Gardner has an 86.9 coverage grade, a very big difference there. And I think part of it is inconsistency in coverage. Sometimes plays happen, sometimes don't. And I do think part of it is something that's been highlighted a bit. It's just how difficult sometimes the transition can be, how scheme specific the play level can be for players when they transition from college to the NFL. And specifically going to playing with Lovey Smith and now playing for the Houston Texans. If we look at some of the numbers this year, Texans are running cover two, straight cover two on 22% of their coverage snaps, which is first in the NFL. At LSU, that was 2% in his freshman year when he went off um, for, for LSU. 70% zone coverage in total, about 40% he was playing in college. And he was playing mostly quarters in college as opposed to this cover two where he could sit back a bit more, maybe be a little bit more of an impactful player down the field than in than he is in cover two here playing on the outsides and the flats and things like that, where it's more of a switch coverage responsibility, which is maybe not what his best um, features are here. And, you know, we'll see how much... Lovey's going to tailor the defense to him going forward, but it is one of these things where you don't want to get too low on a player, but the NFL is just more of a zone coverage type of defensive schemes. Generally, we don't really have guys out on an Island nearly as much as it used to be in the past. And clearly Lovey Smith is not the guy to do that sort of Island coverage. Maybe when they likely have a new head coach, I would say next season, that'll happen a bit more something to pay attention for Stingley. We're not writing him off, but, Again, another grade in the 60s this week, another game where he didn't give up a ton. He actually was was okay in this game versus some others in the past, but he just hasn't been making the impactful plays you would expect other than an interception in the end zone against uh, Trevor Lawrence in that win in week five. But that was more a bonehead play by Lawrence than a great play by Stingley in that game. Okay. Let's get to the best bets for the weekend, and then we'll go into the mailbag segment. Again, drop mailbag questions in the chat here if you want me to peruse them and potentially potentially answer them here. Uh, how, how do I come up with my recreational best bets for the week? Well, it's a combination of our PFF power rankings, which forecast teams and their strength against a average team on a neutral field. They make adjustments for the quarterback. They make adjustments for uh, different injuries and players that are going there. So we have that. I have my own adjusted scores based power rankings, which have a similar number. I mix those together. I also decay those results. So like last week's results mean more than the week before, which mean more than the week before and so on and so forth for those teams. And I have a combination of those two things coming together and those end up coming through for what I have for my projected point spread for a game compared to the actual point spread and blah, 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 figure out who I like more. A little oopsie for me on this one, because uh, I hadn't run the week nine numbers (laughs) until yesterday. And I didn't talk about them with the midweek interview with Eric eager that I had about all the different trade deadline signings. So I didn't really talk about Thursday night football, Uh, Houston Texans. We're number one as far as the line. I had it about 11 and a half line versus the 14 close. 
yeah, I mean, it's convenient for me that the game's over and they lose by 12 and they look pretty good on a 14 line, but my bad, my bad there, people. So that was number one. Number two, and this is contingent on Ryan Tannehill's health, would be the Tennessee Titans as 12 and a half point underdogs at the Chiefs. I don't know. We could probably, it looks like it's a pain tolerance issue for Tannehill. Malik Willis is awful. I mean, he was awful last week. I, you know, I was not pretty high on how good that he was going to be this season after seeing what we'd seen in preseason and last year in the NFL. And if he plays, I don't know, maybe they'll just write this one off as a game. They're unlikely to win anyway. They'll give Tannehill another week of rest. They know they have a decent lead in that division with, um, the Colts now kind of falling apart. And then the Jaguars also not doing so hot. The Colts five and a half point underdogs at the Patriots this week. So Tennessee is interesting. If the Colts lose in particular, maybe that'll be one where they'll just say, Oh, you know what? We'll just sit Tannehill for this one for another week, knowing we have a pretty good standing. This one, I would have it to be more like a 10 point spread. If Tannehill can play and be effective versus 12 and a half. So take that for what it's worth. Keep your, keep your ear to the injury forecast going forward. And lastly here, actually I got two more. So one more is the Cincinnati Bengals. I don't know why my numbers love the Cincinnati Bengals. I know they stunk on um, Monday night football, but my numbers also like the Cleveland Browns a lot. So I didn't, you know, wasn't looking at them as a strong play against the Browns here. I have them as being, they should be more like a nine point favorite versus a seven point favorite against Carolina. It's not great being on the seven, six and a half would be, would be like a smash for me in this one. I don't think PJ Walker is really any better necessarily on a sustainable basis than, you know, Baker Mayfield or whoever going forward, but they had a good game last week. So I think that's being built into this line a little bit here in combination with the fact that Jamar chase out that Bengals offense looked wrecked and unable to move the ball against Cleveland. You know, I'm just betting that it's not a fatal flaw here for them not to have for, for the fact that chase is out and that'll go forward. I even ding them a couple of points for chase being out which seems like a lot for a wide receiver when you have T Higgins who can step in. But even then I have a couple points better. So, you know, do with that what you will. Uh, the last one, this might be the one of the ones I like the best are the green Bay Packers as three and a half point favorites against the Detroit lions. Of course, if that was three, that would be much, much more awesome. Um, I have those being more like six. If there ever is a get right game for any offense ever on the planet, is the Detroit Lions. I mean, we saw what happened with Miami last week. Saw what happened with um, Seattle, the points that they put up in that game. Saw what happened with, I don't know, was the Vikings put up. Every, everyone, everyone could score against this defense here. Rodgers had some positive signs last week with his ability to throw, but they really were just running the ball a lot. And I think that's what they'll continue to do in this game and be successful doing it. And it's almost like do or die time. If the Packers do not win this game, I think their season is basically over. If they do not win this game, we already have them about 30% chance to make the playoffs. If they don't win this game it's going to drop below 20% to make the playoffs in this one with the Vikings continuing to win and the Dallas Cowboys and others stepping up as stealing up all of those wild card spots. It's going to be rough for green Bay if they don't win this one. So that's why I'm leaning for them uh, minus three and a half in this game. Okay, before we get to mailbag, 
Let's pay some bills over here. And if you're going to place some of those, again, recreational bets, why not go to DraftKings? DraftKings is the official sports betting partner of the NFL. Their unbeatable offers right now, new customers can make any $5 NFL bet and get $200 in free bets if your team wins. In addition, stepped-up same-game parlays. Everyone can boost their winnings after DraftKings. And... You can throw down on these stepped-up same-game parlays once per game day all season long. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets if your team wins. Just place a $5 bet on any football game. Only a DraftKings Sportsbook using code PFF. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Also, Western and Southern sponsors the Unexpected Points podcast. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow. Weston and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernandsouthern.com slash PFF. All right. For the mailbag here, first I'm going to give priority to questions from Apple Podcasts. I have a, a couple there, and then we'll get into... Um, for the reviews for Apple Podcasts, threaded in there, which reminds me, if you made it to this point in the podcast, hopefully you like what I'm doing here. You want to drop a review, throw a question in there, go ahead and do so. Would appreciate it. Um, we'll start there and then, we'll get, and then I'll get to some of the questions that we have in the chat. Okay, this is from P Parish 23. Again, these are a little bit old because I haven't had a chance to get to them. So uh, apologies for that with all everything that's going on with the trade deadline. So this is a curious question. Here. He says, coaches kick extra points. Why do you think coaches kick extra points because their opponents lead to two late in games rather than going for two to cut the lead to one, which would allow their defense to give up a TD if things don't go well? It seems like college and NFL coaches alike continue to make this decision late in games when it seems like an obvious go-for-two scenario. Why do you think this happens so much, and what are the analytical considerations? Thanks and love the show. Appreciate it, P. Parrish. Okay, so let's talk about this. And There's a good article where it was called Go for Two, When to Go for Two for Real. It was a 538 article. Let me pull it up here by Benjamin Morris back in the day. Uh, When to Go to Two for Real. And... The he broke down exactly every single scenario. What is your gain in win probability by moving the score by one point to another point? So how you can figure out the you know why you would want to go for it to two for two is that if you're go, if you're getting that two point advantage versus the one point advantage, if that going getting the two point advantage is even higher, if the gain you're getting there is higher than the incremental gain from going from from zero points to one point then you want the two points because you're getting the higher incremental gain for that second point than the gain you're losing potentially for the first point. And this all assumes we're going to make it like half the time. Of course, that's a consideration too. If you believe you have a much better chance to make it than your opponent, um, that can give you more leverage for going for two in these situations because you'll be forcing your opponent sometimes to also go for two. And if you have an advantage there, that's what you have here. So let's look at this exact scenario because it's an interesting one that I hadn't really thought about necessarily that much before so he's saying kick the extra point 
to cut their opponent's lead to two versus cutting the lead to one. So this would mean you score the touchdown and you're down by three in this circumstance. So Morris's numbers here, and these jive pretty closely with, with my numbers here. So the margin after the touchdown, if you're down by three here, going for one point moves you up 6.5% in win probability. Going for two points moves you up 8%, 8 8.4% if you convert in this one. So you're gaining a couple of, of percent by getting that extra two in there, but if you don't convert, you're losing a much bigger amount. And that's what the problem is in this scenario. So let me think of a couple of different ways. One, he mentions that and I think it's true. If you're if you cut it to one, your opponent scores a touchdown, they kick the extra point, presumably. They could decide to go for a two themselves, though, to make it a nine-point lead. But they they score, they have an eight-point lead. I think this whole like one possession game thing is just generally overvalued when we're talking about an eight-point differential. Because again, the one possession game, the quote unquote one possession game, when it's an eight-point lead, means one possession, score a touchdown, make the two-point conversion, which it can matter if there's not a lot of time left in the game. But if there's more time left in the game, make the two-point conversion, which is a 50-50 shot, then to go to overtime which again is a 50-50 shot. So you really need like a few things to happen in this quote-unquote one-point possession to actually win the game because that's what we care about. Care about winning the game. We don't care about tying the game and going to overtime. Whereas if you cut the game, the lead to two versus three, you're opening up the possibility of kicking a field goal to win the game potentially, not have to go to overtime. Versus if you miss the two-point conversion, you're down to three. It makes it much more likely you're going to go to overtime, which naturally cuts your win probability in half there. And in another circumstance, if you're down by three and your opponent kicks you know, two field goals then at this point, well, now all of a sudden you're down by nine and you're out of contention versus your opponent kicking two field goals. If you're down by two, you still have that 8.1 possession sort of thing. So there's that scenario that plays against you getting up to one versus going for two. And the scenario where your opponent just kicks a field goal after this point doesn't get a touchdown, whether you're down by two or whether you're down by one doesn't make any difference. You'd be down by four or you're down by five. So it makes no difference in that scenario. You're not getting the benefit. So the only scenario you're getting the benefit by getting that incremental point is the scenario where your opponent scores a touchdown and has makes an extra point and you need to complete this all on one possession to get back into the game. That's the reason teams don't do it. It is the right move to only go for the one there and to get down by two. So I think it's interesting discussion and a lot of, a lot of things have been put around how you to keep teams out of this one possession game. But I do think coaches are making the right move in that scenario. Uh, another mailbag question here. Asking to explain the adjusted scores a little bit more and exactly how I go into it. Okay, I'll go into this a little bit. I don't want to get into too much detail, but basically I'm looking at all game results from 2015 and on. I don't want to go back too far because I don't want to get too much um, you know, nonsense in there for old results i wanted to be approximating more so what the game that we're seeing today as much as possible although this season's game is a little bit different with the scoring going down so i have that and what i'm doing is i'm collecting all the different information on success rates for teams dropping back to pass success rates for teams running the ball 
total success rate, how often they're passing, their pass percentage in games, uh, eliminating situations where teams have let, like a very low win probability in the fourth quarter because it doesn't really matter projecting going forward, and then using those to project what their expected offensive and defensive efficiencies would have been in this game. Uh, and then combining that with their actual offensive and defensive efficiencies in the game. So using the success rate, which downweights the outlier plays, combining those where it's about 50-50, combining those to project an expected success rate. And then I combine that with pace of the particular game to have an expected score. So we have these expected scores now. Now, this is when the adjustments come into play. So I'll give you all the different adjustments here to really get into everything that goes on here. So I have turnover-worthy plays minus interceptions times 1.5. And why I do 1.5 is normally um, you have more turnover-worthy plays than interceptions. Like that's a natural thing that every turnover-worthy play does not turn into an interception. So, uh, I'm, but if you have more than that, if you have more than 1.5 turnover-worthy plays per interception, that means you're getting kind of lucky. You're getting lucky on these pass plays. So then I subtract out for that. When you're above that number, when you're below that number, you have more interceptions than you do 1.5 um, times that number turnover worthy plays, then you get a benefit. Uh, dropped pass rate. The natural drop pass rate in the NFL is about 7%. So I'm looking, are you above or below that 7% drop pass rate? Let's you know scale that by the number of pass attempts you had in this game. And let's give you a little extra benefit if you're above that number or take away if you're below that number. Fumbles. So I look at all fumbles, regardless of whether they're recovered by the offense of the defense. I take those, those that EPA out of the first calculation, and then I add it. I add the negatives back in here um, by just looking at fumbles, not looking at fumble recoveries, and giving a standard EPA loss per fumble number here. So if there's a fumble six or something like that, um, it's going to be downweighted a lot because I'm just counting that as I would count any other fumble that would happen. Uh, penalties. So penalties, um, again, there's some stickiness to penalties. There's some that that's not, especially big, huge defensive pass interference sort of penalties. So I cut those about at half. The EPA lost or gained on offense or defense for those penalties. And lastly, special teams. Again, special teams is something I cut down even a lot more. I'm only giving about 20% of the credit to bad or great special teams in a particular game because what really drives those numbers are missed field goals, which are random, and returns, which... Sometimes they aren't random. Maybe you could say a great return guy that you have. You know, if you had a Devin Hester or something like that, it wouldn't be random. But you're still going to get some of that benefit. But I'm cutting it down about 20% of that. Then all those adjustments are made to the earlier scores that I had. And boom, they're the adjusted scores. So that gives you all the details you would want and then some for adjusted scores. Okay, last question here before I get to the stuff in the chat is home field advantage. What's up with home field advantage? Is home field advantage dead? Uh, it's close. I've been tracking this. We've had, you know, in 2019, we had a weird situation where the away team actually won 53% of the games during the season. So it was if there was no home field advantage there. 2020 COVID season got even worse. In a way, it was like there was a one point advantage to the road team, which of course is variance. There's no reason to think you're, you're like benefit from being the road team. Um, but that came into play there. It's gotten a little bit better in 2021 and 2022, um, but still, if you're going to go by the numbers, it would probably be less than a point at, at this time. I still model in a little bit over a point looking at a longer timeline for the fact that home field advantage used to be two, two and a half points 
maybe even three points if you go back far enough on the timeline. So I still model in over a point on here, despite the fact that the evidence is really pointing at, you know, probably being less than a point at this time, presumably because travel has gotten so much easier. Um, instant replay has come into, into account to maybe help for some of the referee bias that would come in there. And I think teams and players are just taking care of themselves and have better, more routinized travel schedules and uh, better ability to recover after uh, traveling and getting in and being ready to go there is my assumption for that. Okay, let's get to some numbers, some questions in the chat here. I see we got a lot of stuff in the chat. It's probably people all arguing with each other. But um, if it isn't, we have some things to talk about. Okay, this is an interesting one from uh, Richard Machado here. We have the additions. I got to put my head higher or else I'm getting covered by this big question. With the additions of Chubb and Jeff Wilson, how much does that impact Miami's projected wins remaining. Um, Coming mid-season, is the war much lower than they would have been if they were there since training camp? No. Uh, Chubb and Jeff Wilson, there's not a big difference here when we're talking about war, whether they would have started at the beginning of the season or in training camp. I think, number one, I looked through and I tried to, to model as best I could whether it makes any difference when players come in, I couldn't find anything. So not, not much in the modeling. And I think also we can use our, our logic as far as how scheme dependent are different positions offensively and defensively. The more scheme dependent you are, the more coaching maybe dependent you are. Um, the more your role and responsibilities will shift and be different from team to team, the harder it would be for a midseason addition, theoretically. Uh, edge rusher and running back, the two easiest positions, I would say, on, on each side of the ball for how you can play here. You're lining up on the edge. You're setting the edge. You're normally, you know, you, there's stunts and other things you're going to call, but it's not that aggressive. Um, Miami does some weird stuff defensively. They drop some guys. Sometimes they do some simulated pressures and drop some guys into coverage. That could become a little confusing perhaps for um, edge rushers, but even the downside in those scenarios is pretty low. If they do have to drop back into coverage ever um, because they're normally only covering maybe the flat or even more likely some of the, you know, zero to three, four yards down the field, really trying to trap quarterbacks into throwing interceptions in that area. So not a whole lot there. And again, for running backs, you know, you run the ball. Yeah. There's pass routes that you're going to do. Uh, other stuff, but we've seen running backs plenty of time come off of the street, come in and almost have a full role with the team, which would be really, really difficult for a wide receiver to do or a tight end to do or an offensive lineman to do, or of course a quarterback to do. Uh, but we see running backs come in and pretty much have a full role off of the street. So I don't think there's any problem there with whether you're coming from training camp or whether you've been around before there. Uh, additions of Chubb and Wilson, how much does it impact their projected wins remaining? So here's the thing. <laughs> it's not much. So, um, which makes it difficult to talk about these trades because it almost obscures like the discussion. If you actually put up the wins gained through these types of transactions, because for these types of players, we're going to talk about even for Chubb, if we say he's an elite edge rusher, half a season, maybe like a quarter of a win or something like that, 0.2 wins. And it doesn't look like enough 
to really justify these types of moves, but it is cumulative and it is going to a team which is better. So every like win that you gain above a certain number is worth more than wins you gain below a certain number. And that threshold is like making the playoffs. So for every win you gain above where you would be to help you get into the playoffs, which is the most important thing, help you secure a better seating in the playoffs, help you have a little bit of advantage of being able to beat other teams in the playoffs. Those wins are more important than a team that let's say their projection goes from, you know, even preseason from four wins to five wins. It's like, who cares? That means nothing as far as your probability to win playoff games, get to the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl, which is what we really care about here. So I would say, at most, 0.2 wins here for Chubb and Wilson coming in, most of it going to Chubb. But that can make a difference. That can make a difference because if you look at what we are projecting for the Dolphins this year, we're projecting them to have 9.6 wins. So if we can get that more closer to, to 10 wins, then that can really boost their conference championship and Super Bowl numbers, which currently are only at about 4 and 2%, pretty low. So you're going to hope for some upside there. You're going to hope for some variance there that'll boost those numbers up quite a bit because we do have 70% chance to make the playoffs, which is pretty decent. Um, but the win number getting up between nine and 10, that can have a huge difference as far as securing that playoff spot. Um, let me see. What else do we get? Do we have anything else in here? Uh, okay. A lot of people are talking. We have any other, uh, any other discussions here for the for the mailbag? I don't know if you guys point anything out here. Um, I don't see too much. I see mostly people arguing in the chat, which is always good, or, or discussing, I should say. Um, but maybe I can even talk about some of the things that are being discussed here in the chat before we get out here. Uh, this is an interesting one about the third down stuff that I've been talking about here. So this is agree with the negative of failing to make first downs increases as the number down gets higher. Uh, it's worse not to convert on first down versus third down, but the benefit must be static, which is to say he doesn't know that third and first, this is Daryl Conner. He says, I don't know if third and fourth down success should be valued higher than first and second down success. Uh, if anything, third and fourth down opportunities are really failures on earlier downs. Yes. I don't think, like, we also, who, who puts this information out? I'm not sure if it's Timo, Risque for us, or if it's Ben Baldwin talks about drive success percentages where you look at how often you're converting on first down, second down, third down, fourth down, and then you look at that cumulatively rather than, you know, breaking it down. You can, you can you know, converting on first down, I agree, is just as good as converting on third or fourth down. In fact, it's better because you, the downside is, if you don't convert, if you don't, you don't convert on first down, you have additional downs to go ahead and go forward. The reason I convert on these, th the reason I harp on these third and fourth down opportunities and their importance. Now, it's not their stability necessarily. There are certain teams that are better than others at converting third downs, situations where you know you're going to pass the vast majority of the time. Beyond third and three, teams are passing the vast majority of the time. They're doing a little bit less often now because they understand you can run, get into fourth and one, fourth and two, and then go for it. Um, so that's opening up the run a little bit more in third and fourth, third and, you know, third and four yards, third and five yards, but not that much. So the reason I harp on these ones being more important is because they're just higher leverage situations straight up. You know, we're talking about expected points added here. Uh, and there are two elements to expected points added, Right. Expected, point added, expected points added is the difference between your 
expected points before the snap and your expected points after the play. So on third and fourth down, depending upon where you're going from, very much so in comparison to first down or second down, your expected points assumed on that drive are lower because it's more likely on that third down that you're going to eventually fail to convert and have to punt the ball away, which again is a turnover plus field position. So you're more likely in getting to that turnover. Or if you fail on fourth down, it's legit turnover on downs. Uh, where that isn't the case on first and second down. So your upside, your the ability to gain expected points is higher because your ending point, your ending expected points, getting to the next first down. Let's let's say gaining five yards on third and five versus gaining 10 yards on first and 10, your end state is the same. Your expected points coming out of those two situations is exactly the same, but your expected points going into those two situations are very different. And that's why you have higher leverage, the higher ability to gain value on those third and fourth downs. That's why I focus on those because they have the highest impact on the game. If you're going to say, let's segregate the handful of plays that have the highest impact on this game, it's going to be those third and fourth down plays, or it's going to be turnovers, or it's going to be muffed punt returns and things like that. Anything that leads turnovers, which is basically a turnover. Turnovers first, of course. Second, uh, those types of conversions versus first and second down are just lower leverage plays. But of course, as an offense, you want to be able to to convert those types of plays. And you're mostly going to have to convert those types of plays through passing the ball too, which means you probably have to have a better quarterback uh, in order to be able to do that. Okay, I think that's all I really see here. Uh, But good discussion going on, I will say. Uh, That's all I have to see here from... The chat, uh, drop me some more, any more mailbag questions you may have in Apple podcast reviews, hit me on Twitter at Kevin Cole PFF. If you have some questions there, otherwise I'll be coming back on Monday with the review show for the weekend, all the adjusted scores, all that stuff there. And then midweek, I'm going to do another interview. I think it's going to be Sam. Um, I think it was going to be Sam Schwartzstein, but he can't come on again. So we're going to figure out someone to go on there. I'm trying to get Josh Hermsmeyer to come back, but uh, he's busy or something. He's, he's got a lot of stuff going on. We'll figure out someone to talk about midweek, especially someone who can really play into whatever results we see this particular weekend and the narrative coming out of this week. But until then, everyone, thank you for tuning in. Uh, again, leave a review if, you're, if you enjoy it. Um, otherwise, I'll be talking to everyone on Monday. Thanks.